Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Well, welcome. I'm Rasul. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, teaching pastor here at Bridge Church, and we are excited to be here today. Uh, This is a continuation of this series we call Authentic, and basically it's kind of like just a potpourri where uh, Pastor James, our lead pastor, just says, hey, preach whatever's on your heart, Uh, you know, no strings, just kind of go whatever God has been teaching you, and, and that's what we'll hear from. And what God has been teaching me recently, and what I've been thinking about is this question. How Do you live and think and act differently in the kingdom, in a nation like the United States, which is the wealthiest, most influential nation in the world, as a citizen of a different kingdom? Put it differently. How do you live in probably the most influential city in the most influential nation in the world, but think different thoughts, act in different behaviors, pursue goals with different mindsets and agendas, representing a different kingdom. That's kind of what I've been wrestling about, and I don't know if it's just as I look at the current state of political affairs and debates and talks about trade tariffs, immigration reform, and this idea of gathering power and strength and excluding other people, and maybe it's been influenced by even just the Pusha T and Drake beef and just wondering how, as a kingdom citizen, ought I to respond to just when people, you know, throw shade on a rap track. And do I celebrate and cheer along with everyone else or do I think differently about? So, so this idea of how do I think and act as a kingdom citizen is something I've been processing. So today we're going to look at what we, the upside down kingdom. Now, and the reason why is you can't understand the life and message of Jesus Christ without understanding the concept of the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about this kingdom of God that in many ways is uh, countercultural, counterintuitive, and really polar opposite of the kingdom that he lived in, which was very similar. He lived in a nation of Israel, which was really a colony of a global empire, the Roman Empire. And he taught his followers to live and think different. Well, when I think about this, I, I, I also think about the stories that I like to celebrate and the ones that really resonate with me. One of them is uh, Jamaica's story. I uh, came across a few years ago. Jamaica uh, grew up in Compton. California, youngest of six kids in poverty, in a neighborhood that literally she had to duck from bullets and gunshots flying so frequently that her dad and her mom decided to do homeschooling and come up with a plan to empower her and her siblings to get out of this poverty that they were in. So one night, you know, her dad was watching TV and saw this uh, sporting event and said, you know what? This is what we're going to do. This will be our ticket. I'm going to train and coach 
her to escape this situation through athletics. And so her father saw a certain greatness in her that no one else would have seen and kind of just everyone else ignored. But 39 Grand Slam titles later, Serena Jamika Williams has become the most dominant tennis player of our generation, ultimately, debatably, ever, and went from ducking shots to placing shots on baselines around the world because someone saw something in her. And there's something in me that every time I would see her play, I cheer for that because I, I love the story of the underdog, you know, just meeting insurmountable odds and ultimately becoming victorious. Don't we love those kind of stories? And the cool thing about Serena is you can't talk about Serena without talking about older sister Venus, who paved the way as well. And literally together, they form the most winningest siblings in the history of sports. And so I look at those stories and I go, man, there's something in me that, that likes the fact that even though to others they didn't belong, they still were able to be successful in and, and this aspect of this upside-down kingdom. But we can't talk about the upside-down kingdom without first kind of talking about what the current kingdom looks like, right? Now, if I were to summarize this current kingdom just as simply as possible, it would be summarized as this way, might over right. We've heard it said money, power, and sex are the keys to life. They get you eaten right. That's what they said. This worldly kingdom is, could, could be otherwise, you could say, survival of the fittest. Like my crew, Mob Deep, said, only the strong survive. The, the, this idea that somehow the bully on the playground or the White House gets to determine and by sheer exertion of force how life is supposed to be lived by everybody else. And so Jesus speaks in the midst of this circumstance because our lives and even in this very city oftentimes is just like beats with the heartbeat of this kind of mentality and purpose. So whether it's corporate greed or whether it's sexual assault or whether it's just bullying in other forms, there's this idea in which this might overwrite, it just drips even into our very social structures. And it is in this context that Jesus teaches and talks about his kingdom in contrast to the one of this world. We're going to look at and examine this uh, in his upside-down kingdom, which he himself inaugurates. Jesus inaugurates this upside-down kingdom, and I use that word inaugurates very specifically because you see when a uh, king or a ruler or an official, when they take on a position, they get inaugurated first. And that inauguration is to announce the beginning of something. But the other part to that is it's not completely fully lived out their administration. It's just beginning. We're going to get there real quick in a second. So just hold on to that. But the reason why this kingdom of God is so important is Jesus mentions it over a hundred times in the gospels. The concept, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that someone planted. The kingdom of God is like a woman who was uh, looking for a coin. A kingdom of God. He continued to talk about this over and over again. 
And many theologians throughout time in church history have debated what is this concept he's talking about. And, and it's interesting and fascinating, even as I was preparing for this message, to see how on one end of the spectrum, people say, well, here's what the kingdom of God is. It's, it's about, you know, our sense of personally understanding who Jesus is, a Savior and Lord, being saved and going to heaven. And eventually that heaven will come down to earth, and that's the kingdom of God. Then you look at another commentary like, well, no, the kingdom of God is actually like the, the social implications of God inaugurating his sense of justice and peace and community and love and tranquility. And it's really about a social experience that anybody can appreciate and, and, and encounter, not so much an individual relationship. And, and, and as I read what Jesus talked about and I see his life, I see it's like it's both and, y'all. The kingdom is representing a personal, dynamic, tangible experience of someone encountering the king himself as well as an establishment of what he's going to eventually put completely into place as far as justice and righteousness. But that struggle, that, that justice and righteousness tension is something that throughout church history people have usually tried to take on one and reject the other. But we're going to put those together here today. Is that all right? Is that all right? All right. Because we're talking about the kingdom, and you can't have an either-or kingdom. It's a both-and kingdom. Last thing, just to set it up, when we talk about this kingdom, one of the things that also kind of trips people up is it has an already and not yet component to it. And this is what gets me excited. It's kind of this hope that we're talking about. It's in the eschatological hope that we have in the gospel. Eschatological is the last things, right? This aspect of what we can look for and, and anticipate and expect. And there's an element which this kingdom has already been inaugurated, as I earlier mentioned, by Jesus' actual incarnation. The fact that he came and, 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 and he who was God came and took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us means that this kingdom is already open shop and it started. And the fact that we're sitting here 2,000 years later representing and singing and celebrating this king means that it's already begun. But it's not, all, it's not completely yet complete. And that's the part that we live in, right? That's the tension because you see the things that, we, that Jesus promised and the fact that he's going to come and set all things right and wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no death, nor dying, no suffering, no hunger, no disease, that all of those things have not yet come to pass. And so we live in the tension between the already and the not yet, and God has a plan for us to help bring about the not yet because of what he's already done in our lives. So we live in the tension, but we also live with great expectation for what is to come. Now, we're going to look at this through the passage of Luke chapter 6, uh, which is often called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, it's interesting because it, it's, it shares much of the same content as Matthew chapter 5, which is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And there's different uh, perspectives about what relationship these two sermons have in common with each other. One theory is that there's uh, the same message that was just um, Matthew emphasized different parts that he took and Luke, uh, when he wrote it down, to emphasize different pieces. That's one. The other theory is that these are two different messages that uh, use some of this, a lot of the same content, but as itinerant preachers are often prone to do, it was just kind of remixed. 
And the funny thing is I, I'm, I'm more likely to believe the latter because even in preparing this message, this was something that I had prepared before but kind of totally remixed it based on the unite, unique instances and moment that I am in now. And I think that's what we see. So I think that these are, so the Sermon on the Plain I think takes place at a different time. But in any case, in Luke chapter 6, uh, we, we see Jesus inaugurate. And again, this is the second message that he's given in the Gospel of Luke. So he is just, is just at the beginning of his ministry. And in the spirit of turning things upside down, we're going to actually look at the latter part of the message first, which is his group of warnings and judgments, and then look at what he talks about. Because I really want to, I think it's so essential that we understand the current kingdom that we're in and how Jesus' mindset and kingdom goes the other way. So in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, it states, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Already, you see the counterintuitive, countercultural thing, right? Woe, now, here we go. You got to understand what he's saying here. Now, a woe was a prophetic warning throughout the Old Testament that was used. It was a, a warning that had in it the sense of judgment that is coming upon you as a result of something that was about to happen, as a result of your behavior or the choices or the mindset that you have. So, prophets from Moses to Jeremiah, to Isaiah, to Amos, oftentimes we would say, woe to you, those who steal from your neighbor, those who lie to each other, right? There was a sense of woe. Now, the prophets in declaring these woes would oftentimes warn the cities that they were prophesying to. So by Jesus using this terminology and using this phrase, he is announcing his authority as a prophet over this land and saying, okay, I have a word to you, a divine word that is supposed to get you to change your ways and perspective. Now, so what this tells us is that way, way, way before the six and Drake, Jesus was rolling down the street with his woes. I like it. Um, <laughs> so, but this first woe, it says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. And it's interesting because what Jesus is referring to here is that this kingdom is about trusting in our own power. When you read throughout the Gospels, there's frequently this warning about the rich. Yeah, I think about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, how, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? And, and Jesus points him to the commandments and, and he says, uh, yeah, I've done all those. And it says that he was seeking to be justified. And so Jesus said, uh, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and then come and follow me. It says that the rich young ruler had many things and walked away sad because of the many things that he had. And so in this moment, what we see, and Jesus turns around and he gives the, the, the commentary of the teaching right there. He says, um, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. 
Now, we know Jesus wasn't condemning wealth in and of itself, but what he's, what he's pointing to is the fact that whenever we have a sense of abundance, whenever we have a sense of, of, of affluence, we can kind of think that everything revolves around us. There was this case, I don't know if some of y'all remember the affluenza case, where literally this kid was like, because I have so much, I am not responsible for my actions, right? Crazy, and only rich people can even begin to have such an excuse. I wish poor people could have that excuse, you know? <laughs> But nonetheless, there's this sense of, um, of entitlement, this sense of I got it all, and that somehow that can save and rescue me. But look at what Jesus says in spite of that. Now, this is earlier in the passage in Luke 6.20. He says, blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God, there's that kingdom, is yours. Blessed are you who are poor. Now, you, some of us, we read this and we go, um, hmm? What do you mean? There's two elements of this word blessed. Um, In one sense, it means simply happy. Happy are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours. The other sense is praise. Praise as a sense of recognition, as a sense of honor that is bestowing. Now, Matthew's version also adds to this phrase poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I think it shows the the dual dimension of this. So, like I said, Jesus isn't so much calling out just wealth and and people of affluence, but what he's calling out is an attitude and a perspective that says I'm self-sufficient, that says I have all that I require. And there is a correlation between having such wealth and having such a perspective. Because you ain't got to tell somebody about prayer and the need of God providing when you got no other means in which to feed yourself or your family. It just kind of instinctively kind of comes up. So here's the upside down kingdom value. I trust God for my salvation and provision. This is why Jesus would look at a group of people giving and he bypassed the Pharisees and the Sadducees with their wealth and their influence and their power and saw this widow, this older widow, just drop all that she had, these two pennies into the offering and said she gave more. She gave more because he recognized that there was a sense of confidence in, in, in God's provision and his salvation. Now, I can relate to this personally because um, I was, didn't grow up with a lot of money, but I grew up with a lot of self-righteousness and thinking that I was just good on my own. I didn't grow, uh, by the time I was in high school, was just pretty much a secular agnostic, didn't believe in God, didn't think that you know, religion was just something that people made in order to make themselves feel better. And that's, that's good. For, that's what you need. But I'm good on my own without God. And what happened is God showed me my poverty by the fact that I couldn't even meet my own standards. That's a sign of spiritual poverty when you have standards and then you don't meet your own standards. Amen. Somebody with a New Year's resolution still intact in June, halfway through. Most of us don't get there that far. And there's a sense of a posture of need, a posture of dependence. So the question is, whose goodness do you depend on to justify you? Your own? What you have? What you've accomplished? Or God's? In the upside-down kingdom, there's a sense of trust and dependence. The next woe that he pronounces, he says, Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. 
Jesus issues this warning to those who are proud and satisfied with what this world has to offer. And says, hey, there's a warning here, and here's a judgment here that, that you look, look at that phrase. He says, now, fool, in the present, right now, you may have this sense of satisfaction, but there's hunger to come. And, you know, I, and we see this all the time, that those who seem to have everything going for them, wealth, influence, status, still struggle with a sense of identity, with a sense of just happiness in life. And it's a tragedy that we can see unfold time and time again. Uh, One rapper put it this way, if riches and fame were all they pretended to be, there'd be no need for the Betty for a clinic. And the reality is that no amount of celebrity, no amount of wealth can can fill a hole that Blaise Pascal said that we all have a God-shaped void in our hearts. And it's a void that only God can fill. And so when we try to fill those things with other things, they end up always falling short. This kingdom, the one that we live in, is about looking for comfort with instant gratification. Let me get what I need now. Let me, let me take it and somehow, based on the things that are around me, based on things that I can control and see, if I fill myself up and my life up with those things, then I will be satisfied. And on a smaller level, we can kind of appreciate this. If anyone is out there like myself who had a day off and said, you know what? I'm going to binge watch this whole TV series because at the end of this, I will find satisfaction and happiness. And 12, 14, 16 hours, no judgment here, later, you come up and you're like, you know, I start asking existential questions about myself. Like, what did I just do? And what's this about? So oftentimes there's a sense where these things don't satisfy even though we think they do. Look at what Jesus says in response. Blessed are you who are hungry because you will be filled. Blessed are you who are now hungry, for you will be filled. There's this this promise there. There's this thing of saying, hey, you, you might not be filling yourselves up on the things of this life right now and the things of this world, but, but hold on just a little while long, longer because your change is coming. You know, I, I, this, when I, this was one of those verses when I first started walking with Jesus and following him that just leapt off the page to me. Like, I was like, yo, this is my story right now because throughout my life, I'm looking for the sense of righteousness and thought I could find it in myself and looking for the sense of purpose and meaning. And ultimately, I came up short. But when I started to look my eyes at him, all of a sudden I was satisfied. And I was like, yo, this is so true. But we also see what Jesus is pointing to is interesting in Scripture. You ever think about why we fast? Like, why we put ourselves deliberately in a position of hunger? Because the picture that God is trying to draw is to detach ourselves from this physical sense of food in order to awaken in us a desire for spiritual hunger that will satisfy Luke chapter 4, just two chapters ahead, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. Doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. The first temptation, Satan says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. 
Now, just in case we didn't think or didn't believe that because, you know, he's Jesus, so he don't struggle, the scripture actually says he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was very hungry. Puts it out there. But Jesus' response is very instructive. Quoting Deuteronomy, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What he's saying there is that this world and what you have to offer me can't even satisfy me. And so I am seeking satisfaction from a higher source than what you have to offer. And the same thing is true right now. The upside down kingdom is about seeking God for satisfaction. But here is the problem. You ever... You know, just because of laziness, whatever was in the house, just decide to fill up on some like Doritos, some donuts and onion rings or whatever. And then somebody calls you or invites you to eat like a real meal and you see it in front of you, but you don't have the appetite because you've ruined it eating junk food. And you're like, dang, I would much rather have that. And what God is telling us is that sometimes we can fill ourselves on the junk of this world so much that we, even when we see the the real provision and the real food, don't have the appetite for it. And so he says, blessed are you who are hungry. Now, keep that spot there. Don't spoil your appetite on the things of this world because you will be filled. What do you seek? for satisfaction? What do you seek to to fill you? Is it a desire for God? A desire to say, blessed is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Or is it feed me, fill me now with what I can take and grab hold to? The next woe that Jesus pronounced, he says, woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Now, this one was particularly confusing because I, I like to laugh. And so I, start, I went back into the scripture and looked at every account of laughing in the Old Testament and New Testament. And I fa- discovered something really fascinating. And that is that oftentimes, the majority of the times that this word laugh is used is in a mocking or gloating sense. So for example, Job chapter 12, verse four, Job is this man who is suffering and his friends come by to try to get him to admit that it's because of his own sin that he's suffering. And so they position themselves in this very self-righteous way as over him. And Job says that I am a laughingstock to my friends as he's identifying this sense of suffering that he's experienced and how they're kind of like gloating and, you know, trying to help him, but like on that humble brag kind of help him type of way. Because if you're sitting there like, yo, something, you must have done something that made God do this to you. What you're actually saying is I didn't do what you did because I'm good. And that's this sense of of gloating in this sense. And he's saying, hey, if you are gloating, if you are mocking others in this sense, if you are looking at what you have, then the kingdom is about you. And that's what, in this world, this kingdom is, is oftentimes geared and focused on this sense of our own way of looking at the world and not what other people may need or want. When we look at the instances of poverty, of neglect, 
of abuse. When we look at just, we could just name all the lists of things that are going on in this world that ought to cause us to mourn and to weep. And if we can only be content and looking at ourselves, it, it kind of reminds me of that meme of that dog that's sitting on the chair when there are flames engulfing him and it says, everything is fine. And that's kind of how we can have this tunnel vision perspective that says like, I don't see the house burning down because my particular chair right now is comfortable and seated, everything is fine. But everything is not fine. And Jesus is calling people to see and look at the needs around you. Because look at what he says in Luke 6, 21. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. We see Jesus embody this himself in John chapter 11 when he, he goes to the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, close friend of his, and is now dead, and, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are completely distraught. And they each individually go up to him, and, is, and just with this sense of emotion and anguish. And they said, because they called out, and they asked him to come earlier, and he delayed. And now they're dealing with this death in front of them. And they said, Lord, if you, if you would have been here, our brother would still be alive. And, and then Jesus is seeing all the mourners come, and there, and there was all this crying and death. And, it's, and he says, Jesus wept. Now, the amazing thing about that passage is that he knew he was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead, but he still wept with those who weep because he had a heart big enough to recognize that there was just so much suffering around him. And this aspect of sin and death that he ultimately came to destroy was taking its toll on those who he loved the most. The upside-down kingdom says, I will participate in God's plan to heal a broken world. It's not just about me. So the question is, is it about me or others? Yeah, I know that, you know, we're still trying to struggle and, and get established and do our thing. But the reality is there is a hurting and broken world that exists outside of ourselves that is waiting to be changed. Uh, we saw this play itself out in um, the Bushwick City Group a few weeks ago. Uh, one of the members in the city group, uh, Yannick, her brother was going through something with the legal system and just, you know, had been assaulted by police and wrongly accused. And, and it, it, was, it was looking bleak and bad. And in our city group, he, had to, he didn't have enough money to get suitable counsel. And so... There was this, we pitched in, there was this call and $900 was raised in one night and got him the lawyer he needed, the case dismissed the next day, everything went through. Because people who ain't have a whole lot said, you know what, what we do have, we will contribute to the needs of someone else. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will laugh. And we got a chance to celebrate with this brother and it's been amazing ever since to see his life and the great gratitude that he had for what was done for him take place. This is what it looks like to participate and to look and see where there's brokenness in the world around us. Well, the last bad attitude, as I call them, because there's the B attitudes and then there's the bad attitudes. The last bad attitude says it like this. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. 
<laughs> this one again, uh, I ain't going front. This, this one rocks me. Because, see, I'm one of those people, I like to be liked. You know? I like for people to speak well of me. And so I struggle with this one a little bit when he says, look, but there's a couple key words that help understand and tease out what Jesus is getting to here. The first thing he says is, when all people speak well of you. Uh, It's pretty much impossible to get consensus that everybody is celebrating everything that you think and believe and say. Unless you change it up depending on who's around you. And some of us do that, right? Like we have these separate worlds, separate groups, and uh, we're one person. One day on Sunday, we're our sanctified church person. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Yes. Amen. God is good. But last night, we were somebody completely different. Turn it out the joint. And as long as these worlds stay separate, right, as long as the identities stay separate, we're good. Because we want everyone to like us. This kingdom is about the approval and the acceptance of others. The other piece about this is he said, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. Did y'all pick that up? Because again, there's a historical narrative that's being told and woven through everything that Jesus announces in this kingdom in the New Testament, and it has historical backdrop to it. So one of the immediate ones I think of is Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah was one that God had appointed to announce judgment and doom to the people of Israel because, the people of Judah in particular, because they refused to turn away from their sin. And so he says, okay, so this is what's going to happen now. Because I've sent you prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to say, turn, stop treating people poorly, stop worshiping other gods, stop committing adultery, stop sinning against each other, and you just continue to flaunt me and reject me and do whatever you want, now I'm sending you into a timeout, a 70-year timeout. And so he tells Jeremiah this, and then when Jeremiah gives the message, because it's not what the people in power want to hear or the people on the ground, they don't want to hear, oh, the plant promised land that God gave us, God is saying, that's it, that's a wrap for us for 70 years, we're going someplace else. So they just found some people that's like, nah, Jeremiah tripping, everything's going to be good. And they hired those people around them, and those were the people that were gathered that they liked. And we have to be very careful because we live in a day and age where it becomes increasingly tempting to do the posts that get the most likes, the most retweets, the most follows, and not communicate the truth of what God has to say about something, even if it's not popular. But this is what Lecrae had to say about it. He said, live for acceptance, you'll die from rejection. Because woe to the folk, those who all people speak well of. The rest of the passage will go on to say, but rejoice. Well, first he says, blessed are you. <laughs> Look at this. It's <laughs> all about confusing. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Happy are you. Praised. Honored are you when this is the truth. Now, just for clarity, 
because of the son of man is a very important phrase and condition on this. Like if you're just acting like a jerk and nobody likes you, that's not like what this is talking about. This is not saying, you know, be celebrate that. But when this is, when it's because of the name of Jesus, the son of man was a title name that was given to the Messiah. And he's saying, hey, when it's because of my kingdom, when it's because of who I am that people reject and, and deny you, then because of that, celebrate and rejoice. You know, it reminds me when um, I graduated, I went to U- University of Pennsylvania, and there were a lot of my um, classmates that were in some very impressive uh, positions soon after college. And I had chosen to be a missionary, um, which, you know, was a kind of a different deal. And um, so one of, a couple of my friends, we decided to hang out when I lived in D.C. This was actually when James and I were serving together at Howard University and uh, doing campus ministry. And I was kind of nervous and intimidated because I'm like, dang, they got like this job at these high-end consulting firms and I raise money from individuals to give to me so I can uh, do Bible studies and share Jesus on campus. This doesn't feel like it stacks up at all. And uh, so we met on this, at this pizza shop right off on Georgia Avenue. And uh, so we're t- talking and catching up. And then a group of students from the Bible study that I was leading happened to come into the, to, to the pizza shop. And they're like, yo, Rasul, hey. And they like, they're like giving me hugs and high fives. And this guy's just sitting there. And he's like, dude, I like crunch numbers all day to help big corporations make money. And like you're actually doing something meaningful with your life. Like I wish I was doing what you were doing. And I was like blown away, right? Because I'm like setting up, this, you know, I'm trying to position myself well, wore something nicer than I normally would wear to try to impress. And it, and it was like God was telling me this message right there. Don't, don't worry about their approval. Just seek my approval. Now, again, I'm not coming at anybody's profession, and God bless, we need everybody in every single profession that's out there, so no shade on that. But I'm just telling you that I, what I was internally struggling with wasn't so much to see legitimacy in that type of vocation, but to see legitimacy in what I was doing. And that just comes down to this aspect of who I am trying to seek approval from. The upside down kingdom says I choose to seek the approval of God over the approval of others. So whose approval am I seeking? Now, the thing that I love about Jesus is that it would be enough that he just gave these nuggets. Some people refer to the Sermon on the Mount as the highest and loftiest ideals of virtue and morality that's ever been taught. The ethics of it are so high up there that people are like, no one can reach it. And yet, at the same time, the most amazing thing about this sermon on the Mount or the Plain and the Beatitudes in general was that Jesus didn't just teach it, he lived it. Don't you hate when people tell you to do something and say, you know, do as I say, not as I do? But that's not the testimony we have in Jesus. Paul gives us this in Philippians chapter 2. This is a passage that completely blows me away. And he applies this kingdom agenda, this kingdom mindset to those around him. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That's that this kingdom world mentality. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is that we're saying, blessed are you. 
Blessed are you when you are rejected. Blessed are you when you're despised. Blessed are you when you're poor. Look, he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. This is where it starts getting good. So he says, okay, the things I'm telling you to do, this, this lofty ideal I'm, telling, I'm, I'm challenging you with, this considering others as, as more important than yourselves, he said, I got this from somebody else, this, this man named Jesus. He said, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He said, look, he was equal with God. He was God in the flesh, God incarnate. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were lamping and chilling in, in total bliss and peace in heaven. Didn't need anything at all. And he says even though he was equal with God, he didn't consider it as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He said, look, Jesus is there and he says, look, I, I will exchange. I am rich right now, but I will exchange my rich. Paul would later say it this way. He became, he who was rich became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. That, that is the exchange that he says, blessed are the poor because he lived that out. Blessed are the hungry because he lived that out. And it says he, he became obedient to the point of death. That would have been enough, even death on the cross. And we can't just go quickly by that, right? There's a reason why Paul specifies, yo, death on the cross was another form. We still don't have forms of punishment as brutal as this. First, whipping you 39 times with a cat of nine tails that had bits of glass and bone and shard that would tear your flesh apart. Then stripping you bare, naked, in front of the entire community. Then nailing nine-inch spikes through your wrists and feet. And to live, and you didn't die from the bleeding. You didn't die just from the pain. You died from asphyxiation, which meant that you would basically suffocate because you couldn't bring yourself back up to push against the nails in your wrists and in your feet. And eventually, you would just hang there and die after hours. He said he became obedient even to the point of death. Blessed are those who are hated for my name's sake, for they will rejoice in the kingdom of God. And look at this. The good thing is it doesn't end there. He says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, blessed are you who are suffering right now for you will enter in. Why do we know that? Because that's exactly what happened with Jesus, that even though he was persecuted and despised and rejected, Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53 say, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, God saw and looked on that and said, I have now exalted your name above every single name, the name at which every knee will bow. And then he specifies, we go too fast over this, not just on the earth, but above the earth. That means every angel knees will bow. On the earth, every human being, every animal will be like that scene in the Lion King when the giraffes are bowing down. 
But then he doesn't stop there. Then he says, under the earth. This idea that people have that somehow hell will make you separate from complete recognition of Jesus, that's not what we see here. He says, even the demons will still tremble. Even those who rejected him, oh, they're going to bow down. It won't be willingly with credit, but it's still going to happen because his name was exalted. And at that day and at that time, all of the things that, that, that go in between, between that already kingdom that was established and the not yet, complete peace, complete justice, complete equality, complete righteousness in individual living as well as corporately will be expressed. And in the meantime, he's calling us to dislocate our affections from this world kingdom to his so that other people can see the beauty and the glory of that life and choose it as well. Because how will they see unless somebody goes and tells them? How will they hear unless someone tells and preaches the message? How will they preach unless they are sent? Will you say, here am I, send me? You know, the cool thing about this is I believe that that God-shaped void that Blaise Pascal talked about that is in each and every one of our hearts, that it is so deep and it is so profound that it gets expressed and lived out and a portrait gets painted even in the art that we create. So when I listen to music now, even though people only have shards and fragments of it, they might just get the fallenness of humanity well. They might just get something triumphant well, but usually they get a piece of it. And every once in a while, you'll just see whispers and shadows of the redemption that Jesus is working through even people who don't necessarily acknowledge that story. They can't help it because the story is in our story. So when I see Lord of the Rings and I think about that ring and I think about that, the aspect that ring representing sin and the fallenness and brokenness in the world. But recently I thought of another story where we see a group of people that are trying to kind of hold on to what they are because they are rich and wealthy and as a result of that stick to themselves. We see a king that gets challenged from his throne and the only way that he actually responds victoriously is by emptying himself of his power and then even dying for the sake of his followers. Fortunately, that wasn't the end of the story for T'Challa either. Oh, y'all didn't catch that. Y'all didn't catch that. But it's true. It's amazing. And when you think about the story, the thing that's so profound and deep there is that this whole thing centers around, are we going to take what we have from Wakanda and just keep it to ourselves? Or are we going to represent and be a part of an upside down kingdom that says that we have been blessed to be a blessing? And when that transformation occurs and then that change occurs, now we're able to see true flourishing happen throughout. This kingdom represents right over might. You see, Jesus flips everything over and allows us to see that true righteousness, true meekness will inherit the earth. He said, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. 
So my encouragement today, this week, as we, as we go about and live in the kingdom, which oftentimes is by another set of rules, in our own hearts, another set of rules, let us continue to align ourselves to a God who says, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We stand in the gap between the already and the not yet. And the closer we live out that kingdom agenda is the quicker we get to say, Maranatha, come Lord, come quickly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the snapshots and the portrayals that you give us of your kingdom. Lord, there are ways in which we, um, we can get caught up in trying to be satisfied with the things of this world. God, help us to remember that these underdog stories is ultimately fulfilled in you. And that if we stick with your plan and your program, God, that we will see in the end that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.